This is a Federal News Network podcast. A group of Social Security Administration employees rallied outside SSA's headquarters in Baltimore last week. They're frustrated. SSA staffing is at its lowest in decades. Large numbers say they plan to leave next year. And bosses from the American Federation of Government Employees urge the agency to improve telework opportunities and raise pay. They're also pressing Congress to give the agency more funding and staff. More now from Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. SSA is facing a 25-year low in agency staffing levels, currently operating with just below 60,000 total employees. Between March and August of this year, SSA lost another 1,000 field office workers nationwide. The depleted staff levels create more work for employees who remain with the agency, according to the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett Kelly, AFGE's national president, spoke to SSA employees at a union rally. Employees are overloaded, overworked, and underpaid. Let me say that again. Employees are overloaded, overworked, and underpaid. Now, SSA used to be one of the best places to work in the federal government. It's now among the worst. Thousands of workers are expected to depart in the coming year. Now, these are highly skilled workers. As you've already heard, they are highly skilled. For many positions, it takes years of training to reach the full expectancies, you know, and efficiencies and depth of knowledge. It takes years of training. SSA cannot serve the public without a quality workforce. Did y'all hear what I said? But the agency has continued to be hostile to its workers. It has ignored several of Biden's executive orders aimed at modernizing public service and fostering corporate labor management relations. It should be no surprise to any of us that despite all of the efforts of AFGE overworked employees, there are growing backlogs in the field, more service delays on the 800 numbers, and a long line at the field offices across the country. Now we're here today to say that enough is enough. Now it's time for a full renegotiation of the Trump era union contract, including a revision of his heavy-handed telework policies and broken personnel system. It's time, and we're calling on the acting commissioner to step up and ensure partnership with the workforce. SSA's Officer of Labor Management and Employee Relations had done nothing but impeded progress to recruiting and retaining a quality workforce. According to a recent survey that AFGE distributed, the workforce retention problem could soon get worse. Four in ten employees who took the survey said they plan to leave SSA within the next year. The staff attrition is being driven by several different issues at the agency. Jessica Lapointe is president of AFGE Council 220, which represents SSA field office workers. Management employee relations are severely strained. Employees are burnt out. A lack of back office processing time, telework opportunities, low pay, inadequate training, and ongoing support are the overriding factors of employee discontent. Managers often resort to tactics of micromanaging and excessive monitoring to control impossible workloads. Employees are concerned that they are not seen as human beings, but rather insignificant cogs in a machine. LaPointe later told Federal News Network that while micromanagement and over-monitoring are certainly problems, they aren't really the root of the issue. The relationship is strained because there's too much work and not enough employees to do the work. So we talked about the micromanaging, we talked about the hyper-monitoring. 
It's a symptom of the problem. It's a culture that is set up to fail. It's a culture that is set up to be a bullying culture. The underfunding is driving it. The staff leaving is contributing to it. And so managers are pulling out all the stops. They're, they're denying leave because of workload demands. And that leaves the employee feeling undervalued, undercared for, and ultimately deciding to leave because it's not worth it anymore. AFGE said many employees leave SSA because of a lack of telework flexibilities that other agencies do offer. According to SSA officials, field office employees can currently telework a maximum of two days per week, and teleservice employees can telework up to four days a week. Rich Couture, president of AFGE Council 215, shared with Federal News Network what some of the negotiations looked like to try to expand that further. In the context of this attrition crisis, We really felt that SSA needed to act with greater urgency, taking into consideration the concerns that employees had with respect to telework, with respect to keeping their families safe. And we unfortunately didn't get anything done. It was seven days of negotiations that led to nowhere, that resolved nothing. And we are still in the same position that we were in you know, over the last few months and and really the last couple of years, especially with telework. So, you know, the employees have spoken through administration surveys, union surveys, in communications with, with the agency that they want more telework. They, they know they can do the job from home. Many of the, uh, the jobs that we have handle work that can be done 100% remotely. We have a lot of positions that are currently 100% telework, but we have no remote work policy. And so that has led uh, some of our employees to leave for other agencies that do have remote work. Currently, the agency has no plans to change its telework policy. SSA officials have said the union and the agency have agreed to continue under their currently negotiated provisions. SSA was also one of the first agencies to reach agreements with all of its unions to reopen offices to in-person services earlier this year. Part of reopening doors to the public was an effort to reduce a backlog of SSA requests that built up during the pandemic. But according to AFGE, the backlog wasn't caused by employees' telework, but rather fewer employees having to do more work to make up for the loss of staff who left the agency during the pandemic. Here's Couture again. If they want to see somebody in person, they have the right to see somebody in person, and we do not disagree. But much of the work we do, period, is is, is work that can be done remotely. We're not against in-person service for the public. We're not against keeping doors open. Quite the contrary. We realize that, like you know, the job market at large, this is what people want. This is what employees want. This is what job seekers are looking for. They want that work-life balance. They want to have greater flexibility. SSA really doesn't have a choice if it wants to be a competitive employer. It needs to meet the needs of the employees it has and for the job seekers that they're trying to attract. And telework is not going away. They have to embrace it or public service is going to seriously deteriorate. But to the point about waiting times in field offices in particular, the problem is understaffing. That's what's causing the wait times. That's what's causing the delays in service. It's not that people are teleworking. You know, people are taking interviews from home. They're calling people up. They're handling claims that were filed online. They're handling a lot of the back-end work where, you know, you know, you're not seeing somebody in person. So we're seeking to adapt to meet those times as well as maintaining that in-person component. 
this agency is going to lose thousands more employees if it doesn't have a robust telework program. And that's what's going to lead to even worse waiting times, even worse lines out the door, even worse public service. So telework is not the problem underlying the agency's severe wait times in the field offices. It's the fact that we don't have enough people to do the work, period. AFGE says more funding is the key solution to resolving many of the workforce problems. Under the continuing resolution that will fund the government through December 16th, SSA received nearly $100 million in additional funding. According to agency officials, that extra funding will go toward hiring efforts and providing overtime pay to address large workloads. But SSA also says the agency will need the entire $14.8 billion in Biden's fiscal 2023 budget request to make serious workforce improvements and improve services. AFGE, though, is calling for an additional $1.7 billion above that request. The extra funding would be broken down into 60% towards staffing resources, 18% to fund the agency's disability determination services, and the rest going to IT modernization and increasing field office security. AFGE National President Everett Kelly left the union rally crowd with a clear message. It's time for Congress to end years of underfunding and provide the agency what it needs in December by passing a physical year 23 budget with $16.5 billion for SSA. It's time. Together, brothers and sisters, we will ensure SSA can avoid the looming staffing crisis and step up with pride in providing the public with the service that it deserves. Together, we will make this change. Together we will fight until we have a fair contract. What do you say? Can we do this together? Let me hear you say together. We will get it done. Drew Friedman, Federal News Network. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. 
So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, 
one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so while sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate 
And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.